conclusion of a series that I began some time back. Um, you don't have to have heard the uh, other parts of this, but we're concluding the series called New. And I think an awesome day on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, to remember and proclaim the new life that we can have because of what Jesus accomplished for us. Amen? I like uh, just uh, one of the words that he cried out on the cross. It has been a tough last night. It means paid in full. Your sins and my sins paid in full. That we can have new life because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Christ is the, it is the greatest event in the history of the world. It is what separates Christianity from all other religions in the world. The object of worship that people worship in the different religions, all of the, all of the people that they followed are still in the grave. Jesus is the only one that said, I will die and three days later I will rise from the dead. And he did that, defeating death itself. And so that statement's not just hyper. Sensationalism is true. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And we celebrate today. You know, Christmas is awesome, no doubt. We're, we're, we're so glad that we celebrate the, the, the newborn king coming to the earth as God's plan to rescue humanity. That he lived as one of us, that the Son of God took on human flesh to know us fully. He was tempted like us. He experienced suffering like us. And he knew us in every way because I think what he wanted to do was instead of just from afar, God was saying, well, you know, you'll, you'll be my people, but I'm going to send my son among you, God in the flesh, to be you, to understand you fully. And then he is crucified in this horrible, horrible event that we remember. You know, we call it Good Friday. It wasn't good for him that day. It was terrific. It was great for us in that we could not save ourselves. We could not bring salvation upon ourselves. We could not be good enough to bring salvation to ourselves. But he died this death, this horrific death. It was bad enough the physical pain he endured, but he bore our sins upon himself every bit of shame that you've ever dealt with, every bit of guilt, every bit of sorrow and suffering he bore in his flesh upon that cross, paying for our sins completely, the perfect sacrifice. And he took on this penalty that we deserve. And as great as that is, he couldn't end there. If he would have stayed in the grave, if he would have stayed dead, redemption could not have been possible. Forgiveness could not have been possible. True hope, true joy, peace and contentment, and new life wouldn't be possible. All those things that we look for, really, because the world is looking for true joy, peace, contentment, and true life. And they look for it in all these different places. And some people look in religion. Some people look, look for it here and there, worldly things. But all of us are created in our hearts to desire those things. And we are looking at it, at it from, from all the wrong places at times. And without Christ, without the resurrection of the dead, we could not have any of that. 
His, his resurrection from the dead validated everything that He was. It validated who He said He was. It proved who He is and who He was. Because He made some bold claims on the earth, didn't He? If you look at the Gospels and the things that Jesus said, and I'm not going to get into all of that He said, but He made some incredibly bold claims about who He was. I mean, that He was God, that He was the resurrection, the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the, the door that you come in and, and, and for salvation. I am your peace. I am your joy. I am your hope. I am your righteousness. And He called Himself all these things and He made very bold claims, very exclusive claims. And so His resurrection from the dead validated all of that. It validated who He said. Because without Easter, again, without the resurrection, we, we can't have hope, joy, peace, and true life. We don't get these things without Jesus and His resurrection from the dead. That's why we are here. That's why we put our hope in this event as the first apostles did. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, and he's kind of building his case in 1 Corinthians 15, basically saying, Jesus rose from the dead, and that's why we do what we do. That we, we are, because of that event, we're all in. And he says this. He says, if, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus didn't do that, he said, we are to be most pitied. In other words, the world should feel sorry for us because we are foolish. And to believe, to believe this. And so because it happened, and because Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus, remember when he was persecuting Christians? And he's the one that wrote about this new life that we have in Christ. He was persecuting Christians, rounding them up to be murdered, and Jesus confronts them. So he has this encounter with the risen Lord, and Jesus says, I'm the one you're persecuting here. I am who I said I am. And it rocked his world. And so, his writings and everything that he put his life into when he says, I'm all in, is because his testimony speaks to us. He says, yeah, it really happened. This is not just a fairy tale. When I write in these first century documents, these letters to these churches, the reason why I write all about what kind of life that we can have in Christ is, is based on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and I've experienced him and I've spoken to him. It really is true. And he said, because of the resurrection, I am all in. I give my life. I surrender my life. I make him Savior. I make him Lord. I give him all that I am because he rose from the dead. He is who he said he is. And he is Lord and Savior. And he is loving. And he laid on his life. But one day, we will all stand before him. And he will be our judge. And the judge who is the rightful judge will judge us based on a decision that we made about His sacrifice and His resurrection. Was I Lord of your life or not? And so He's paid the price. He's given us the gift of salvation. He's given it as a free gift. We cannot save ourselves. And we simply we turn from our sins. We turn from being God of our own life and we make Him God. Make Him Lord. And that's the, we stand before him and give an account for that decision. 
If you haven't made that decision today, I encourage you. Make that decision to follow Christ because of what He did for you. He loves you deeply. And He is risen from the dead. The main text that we've been using in this series um, up here on the screen um, from 2 Corinthians 5, again, Paul writing, he says this. He says, At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view of how differently we know Him now. How differently we know Him. Not just know about Him. Not just have facts about Him. Not just to say, well, He's a good teacher, but He's not Lord. He is a great healer, but He's not Messiah and Savior. No, is and Paul had some thoughts about it. He said, I think differently. Having encountered Him, I think differently about Him now. Because He encountered Jesus. He said, I saw him from a human point of view, and I think of him differently because now I know him. Verse 17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And so this passage, along with other passages that we have looked at through the series that promise new life, were not written as empty hope or to help us feel better about ourselves. It's not self-help. In fact, it's just the opposite if I cannot help myself. It wasn't written and said, well, it may or may not be true based on your interpretation or based on what you feel like you need to do with that, and you stick your own path. It was written in a definitive way that new life comes from Christ alone. And again, Paul was all in because of the resurrection of Jesus. The writers Paul and James and John, and, and when they wrote to the churches after Jesus had risen from the dead, they, they wrote these letters to these churches with confidence and under great persecution. But they wrote in confidence that there was this factual, truthful event that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore validated everything that he said and that he promised. And so they wrote these words from that place. Paul wrote with resolve, knowing that if you belong to Christ, you have new life. You will have hope when there seems to be no hope. You can have peace in the midst of despair. You can have joy when there seems to be nothing to be joyful about. In spite of circumstances that are on the earth, because... As we looked at the beginning of the year, we did a series on suffering, that there is a reality to brokenness and suffering in our world. But we don't have to live dictated by that. We can have actually peace in the midst of it because of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And then they, they ultimately wrote that you will definitely, without any question or doubt, you will have eternal life with Christ if you belong to Him. That means even death itself, when we take death, is temporary. Isn't that incredible? That although this body stops living, it is a temporary idea because our soul and our spirit will live on from the real us, will continue to live. And they wrote with confidence. That's why Paul said, for me to live as Christ but to die is gain. So whether I'm alive or dead, I get Jesus. I'm a, I, I, I win either way. 
If I, if I live, I live for Christ. If I die, I die, and I belong to Christ. And I'm with Him either way. And so it's a win-win situation for me. And he wrote with confidence. That's why he told the, the church in Philippi that in Philippians, I think it's just kind of a, an interesting story. He, he says in his letter to them, he says, you know, for your sake I'm alive, you know, because I, God has me doing this work. And while we're on the earth, God has called us to proclaim his kingdom and to live for his kingdom. And he says, he says, you know, I'm here for your sake. But I understand that. He said, but I'd rather be there, just to let you know. I'd much rather be in heaven because I understand eternal life and I'm right with confidence. He's but for your sake, I'm here. And ultimately, there was a time where Paul, his life was taken from him. He was executed for his faith. But writing in confidence that we will have eternal life. Because he rose from the dead, he is who he said he was. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's exclusive statements by Christ. He's the living water. He is the way to eternal life. He's the bread of life. He's the savior of the world. And outside of Him, we can't have true life. We can't have true joy, true contentment, true peace. That light is flickering, David. Can we just hit these two, like, east and west? And... There we go. I don't want a strobe light. I might start dancing or something. Can't have that in church. But today I want to look at how the crucifixion of Easter story speaks to each of us right where we're at. It's, it's not just a first century story, it's all of our stories. Again, that is why the, that's why the church is this, that's why there's Christianity, is because these followers of Jesus, they watched what he went through, they saw that he was looking from the dead, they go into the you know, upper room and ask, and the church was born. And because of these events is why we're sitting in this room today. It's a continuation of the story, so it's all a story, and it speaks to us in a very personal way. And as I prayed earlier, I, you know, as we've heard this story of Easter, the story of the resurrection, just like Christmas, don't lose the significance and power now that's where we have to be diligent. I have to do this myself is to ask God, you know, this week I'm just praying, Lord, I've read this story, I've seen this story, I've heard this story, I've heard millions of messages on this story, maybe not millions, but a lot of messages on this story. God, help me not to take it for granted. Help me not to just step through this season and miss the power and significance of what this speaks to us. And so I want to just deal with that in the next little bit here is the Easter story to us, first of all, the reality of the crucifixion. And I understand, and I, again, I'm not, my, my heart today is not to try to sensationalize the thing, but to, uh, but, but to help us get a grip of how awful of an event, the, the, the reality of the crucifixion of Christ. And he went to a cross, willingly dying for us. That because of sin, because sin came into the world, and that we're all born into sin, and this idea of sinfulness is on each human heart. And then the, the, the natural progression is that sin leads to death. 
It's just a progression. So why Paul says the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. It's this progression that you're born into sin and so you ultimately die. That's why Adam and Eve, that's why there's sadness when someone dies. It's because the original intent of God is that we would live forever. And that, you know, and, and, and technically we will live forever. And we're created to live forever. But when God created mankind, death was not a part of the equation. And because, here is the big deal, and here's where all sin can be boiled down to this idea, because, and we get, uh, and I've said this before, we get caught up in the fruit, whether it's an apple, peach, who cares? Here's the idea. Man took God's job and they became God of their own life. I will be God. God, you don't do a very good job. I will become God of my own life. And that's basically the foundation of every sin. When we make a sinful choice, it's rejecting, I don't want to do it your way, I'll do it my way. And I will become God. And so the reality is sin leads to death. And all of us have sin. And then Jesus steps into the time in history for all of us. Yes, for the sins of the world, but very personally that we can apply it to our lives that He steps into the place where we're on our way somewhat of to our execution, that it, we are on the way to the electric chair, that we are on our way to the gallows, we deserve death, and Jesus steps in and holds us back and He says, I will die in their place. That's the gospel. Is we can't earn our way out of it. We can't pay enough to get out of it. We can't do enough good work for religious activity to get our way out of it. We have to accept that what Christ did was sufficient and good enough for me. And it was a gift. And it's an overwhelming gift. Is that He steps into this place in history and He takes the sins of the world upon Himself and He dies in our place. But at the crucifixion, he dies, and he is completely dead. He is God, you know, Son of Man, Son of God, but he's completely dead. And you've got to realize what's leading up to this is the disciples, they, they've seen what has happened to him. First of all, he was scourged beyond recognition. We are told that in Scripture, that he is beaten beyond recognition. The scourging of Jesus was horrific. The Romans were experts at torturing people. That crucifixion was a horrific death when they would beat people. At the end of a crucifixion, people were begging to die. And that's how they did it. Is you did not cross the Roman Empire and they would make your life suffer. And so, here's Jesus going through he's been nearly to death. Now they're hanging him on a cross. And the disciples have witnessed this. And you've got to look at it from their perspective. Here are people following Jesus. They've been with him. And they see all of this happening. And their hearts are broken. You know, they didn't, a lot of times they didn't understand, you know, he would talk about, you know, the Son of Man, I must die. He's going to be handed it, you know, put in the hand of sinners and he's going to die. You know, and, and it says that they wrestled with that. You know, will he just, you know, lay over and just take a nap, and now I'm dead, and now I woke up again, and then it's not that big of a deal. And they just didn't see this coming of the horror of it. 
Because again, physically it was awful, but spiritually he took on the sins of the world, the guilt, the shame, the suffering, the sorrow. And so they were hurting. They were devastated. Can you imagine someone that you love deeply and you watch them endure all of this? Maybe thinking that it wasn't going to play out like this. I mean, one time the disciples were, you know, they were, because they, you know, heard him talking about, they, they loved the king talk when he was talking about the kingdom and he was the king of the kingdom. They, they loved that talk. Is this the time now, Jesus, where we're going to take over and we'll be on your side and your team and we'll beat all the bad guys and we'll all be victorious and we'll be next to you? And they liked that kind of king and kingdom talk, but here was the king who would become a suffering servant because his kingdom is not of this world. He was going to do it differently. His way to the throne is through the cross. But when he talked about death and stuff, they really were trying to figure out what, exactly where he was going with that. But they were hurt, they were devastated, and they had they, they were the doubts that they had, the questions. We did not see it going down like this. I mean, they're sitting after his death, the disciples, they're in this room, hidden away, and they are just distraught. I mean, probably tears, probably going, what in the world? When they arrested him, you know, they all scattered. They're probably feeling guilt. That in his greatest time of need, we bailed on him. Peter, James, and John, remember Jesus said, pray with me. And they were falling asleep. And, you know, again, they didn't understand the significance of the night. He was about to be arrested. And he came back, you know, and he goes, why are you guys sleeping? Could you not pray with me for one hour? And can you imagine their thoughts is that we abandoned him in the greatest time of need. And so they are distraught and seeming tortured beyond recognition. And they have some questions. How in the world could he be raised again? Talk about life. How, how could this happen? How can he be raised to life? He was beaten and, and tortured. And they may have had questions, is this a literal raising from the dead or is this a spiritual raising from the dead? What, what, what is this? He was destroyed. How, how could anything come of this? And so we think from their perspective, this horrific, this horrible moment that they have seen their friends the Savior of the world do this, and they are hurting, and he's crucified, and then he's in the tomb, and, and, and it's, it's a Saturday, you know, it, it, it's before the resurrection, but here's the in-between time. And here's what this story speaks to us, because there are times in our lives where we have those Saturday moments, where it seems like, God, where are you? I, I, I did not see this working out like this. There's devastation in your life, there's hurt, there's pain, maybe you brought it on yourself, maybe there were other circumstances surrounding it that, that you thought you had hope for something and it's not happening the way a broken relationship, a, a, something has failed, something has hurt, you have loved ones that you've been praying for and it's a painful, somewhat Saturday season and the fact remains is, is that how do you have hope in this? And God, you seem a million miles away and my prayers don't seem to really be mattering much right now. And I'm imagining the disciples felt like that, is that, that God, he's absent, he's gone, he's dead, he's seen what has happened, and now what? Now what do we do? See, what the disciples didn't know, again, Jesus would talk about it, 
He said that he was going to be raised from the dead. But yeah, again, the perspective is, is uh, that he didn't just he didn't just die like natural causes. You know, like you know, most of our loved ones when we watch someone die. Some of you guys have endured tragedy, and, and you understand that. But you know, when a person becomes older, they have, have had a disease, and we just watch them kind of fall asleep. And I imagine the disciples maybe had that scenario that he was going to maybe lay down and just die, and then he's going to lay there, and then they're going to watch him get up, and it's going to be all good. But to watch how it went down, you can understand what they're feeling. But they didn't know that Easter was coming. The literal, actual resurrection from the dead was just around the corner. Hope would be restored. Redemption would be, would be won. And that's how we can have joy, hope, peace in hard times, in difficult situations, in Saturday moments, is because of the resurrection. If nothing else, that we can believe and have hope that we serve a King who is alive, a Savior who is risen. No matter how bad the situation is on this earth, we serve a Lord and Savior who is very much alive. And that because Easter happened, because he rose from the dead, it validated who he said he was. So I want to look at a few aspects of the Easter story that speak to us. We're going to look at John chapter 20. I'm going to track through here and we're going to pick out some things and, uh, and, and, and then we're going to end with a worship song and then I'm going to let you go. Here's what it says, John 20. This is John's perspective on what happened. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and she found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. I love him. I'm going to pause right there. John's writing this and he's talking about himself. That's a confidence that you can have in Jesus. You know, we can all say that about Jesus. I'm the one that he loves. But these guys, you know, they, I love it because they are us. And even some of their questions, you know, one time Jesus is bearing his soul that he's going to be, the Son of Man is going to be, you know, crucified. And, and then they begin to argue about who's the greatest among them. You know, I mean, it's like your friend telling you, man, this is, you know, I've I, I got something heavy to share with you. And this is going to be, I'm, I've got a massive life decision. And you're like, yeah, so, you know, you know where do you want to go for lunch? Do you know what I just told you? And you know, they begin to argue among themselves who's the greatest, you know, and, and he's bearing his soul. And so we see a little comedy played out, and, and I, just, I love that. The one that Jesus loved. Peter, just, let, let, he said, let's clarify, there's Peter, and then there's the one that Jesus loved. She said they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So you can hear the doubt. They saw what happened to him, so they, it's hard for them, even the ladies, they're, hard, they're having a hard time. Where, where they put him? Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. And here's another comedy. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That is hilarious, people. You can't think this stuff up. I mean, you know, it's in the Bible, as uh, John is saying. You remember the time I outran you to the tomb? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to write about that, and it's going to be for everyone to read for all, you know, history and all of eternity. We're going to get to heaven one day. You know, they're going to be telling the story. Peter goes, yeah, you outran me. Okay, thank you. All right, let's move on. So you know I got there first. Verse 5. He stooped down and looked in and saw the linen wrapping was lying there, but he didn't go in. 
Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed that the linen wrappings were lying there, while the cloth that he covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying a part of the other wrappings. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I talked about that a few years ago, but I'm going to talk about it again today. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. <laughs> Don't you love that? Uh, Peter, probably not so much, but that guy, the guy that Jesus loved, the one that outran Peter, he believed. For until they still hadn't understood the scriptures, that said Jesus what? What's the word there? Must rise from the dead. Then they went home. So here's some things that we're going to pull out. What? Then they went on. That was it. Yeah, yeah. End of story. All right, let's look at that. Let's look at the first. Um, yeah, let's go up. All right. So, so what the Easter story speaks to? So first of all, number one. The reality is that the disciples had a hard time believing that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. On other accounts in the Gospels, you know, you have just different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's other accounts where it says that, you know, after the ladies realized that, 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 that he had risen from the dead, they went and told the, you know, they, they were trying to tell the other disciples, and it flat out says they wouldn't believe. And that, there again, what I'm, I'm so glad about is the way it's written is it's an encouragement to us that sometimes we have doubts. Who's ever had doubts here? You ever have doubts in your faith and as you walk with Christ and you are thinking about the story of Christianity? You ever, ever had doubts? I have. Having doubts is not the absence of faith. And so these guys, they're wrestling with this. They saw what happened and they're wrestling with it. So they have a hard time believing that he had actually risen from the dead. And so some didn't believe when they received the news, some doubted even after they saw him. I mean, that, isn't that interesting? So you can understand why they would have doubts and they would find it hard to believe. They had seen him beaten beyond recognition and crucified. But they ultimately did believe and they testified and they testified to us that he did rise from the dead. That we would also believe even though at times we would have doubts. At the end of this story, we have Thomas. You know, what do we call him? Doubting Thomas. That's where we get that. Because when Jesus first appears to all the disciples, Thomas is not with them. And they said, hey, Thomas, you know, he's really risen from the dead. And he said, I won't believe until I am able to touch the nail prints and, and, and the side where they pierced him. What is Thomas saying? I saw what happened to him, and this is very hard for me to believe. I, I, and I, and I, I, have to, I, have to, I have to see it for myself. And there are a lot of people that say, you know, I understand you can tell me about Christ, but I need to kind of work this out for myself. And God is working on each human heart to draw you. And, and it's okay to share your faith. But, then, but, you know, sometimes don't be discouraged when people are not just buying into what you are telling them. Continue to love them. Continue to plant the seed of the good news into their heart. Some people are struggling and they're wrestling. And Thomas is like, you know, I, I, I'm having a hard time because I saw him. He's my friend and I saw what happened to him. And then eight days later, he appears again and Thomas sees him and what did Jesus say? He says, come and touch the wound. It's really me. It's really me. And Thomas touches and what does Thomas do? He begins to worship and he says, my Lord and my God. He calls him God. He says, you are who you said you were. I declare that you are God. 
And then Jesus says something interesting to Thomas. He says, Thomas, you believe me because you saw. But more blessed are those who will, that don't see me, yet who, who will believe. And who is he talking about? Thomas. Jesus saying, more blessed. You, you believe you just saw it. Those people sitting in King Bible Church a couple thousand years from now, more blessed that they believe it because they haven't actually seen me, but they have faith in who I am and because of your testimony. And then verse 7, here's number 2. So that they really had a hard time believing your doubts are okay. Let your doubts drive you to Jesus. I always say this, if you're in a legitimate search for truth, you will run into the truth every time you come out. Number 2. There's something in there that's interesting, and some of you guys have heard this part before. If you've not, this is a, just an amazing thing. We're told in Scripture, and there's nothing in Scripture that is just there by accident or just by happenstance. In verse 7, it says, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head, so you have these wrap, you know, they would wrap up just, uh, you know, the person who had died, they would wrap them in these linen cloths, and they would put over their face this napkin, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' face, head was folded up and lying apart from the other napkin, the wrappings. So we're told specifically this story. Where he covered his face, it was this folded thing, and it's folded and it's separate. And so the idea is that the other cloth, you know, that was covering his body are just kind of laid there in this kind of, you know, random pile. And this cloth over here is folded and set aside. Have you ever wondered why that is? Some of you guys know because you've heard this before. In Jewish custom, when people are sitting at the table to eat, and a you have a um, you have a servant, male or female servant, nearby, what they would do is they wait for cues. You know, in, 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 if you. Down Abbey fans, Down Abbey fans here. Who watched Down Abbey? You admit it. Down Abbey. You have these servants that serve people, you know, and they wait for cues. It was very much like that in the Jewish custom. They would wait for certain cues. There was a cue that was, again, it's unspoken, but if you got up from the table and you just dropped your napkin, this cloth that you had had maybe in your lap, and you dropped it, that was the symbol of the, the, to tell the servants, I'm finished, clean up now. But if they did this, if they folded it a certain way and they laid it down and they got up, that was cute to tell the servants, I'm coming back. You see why it's significant? There's nothing by accident that we have the randomness of the other cloths that are laying there, and it says, it tells us in verse 7, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrapping. What is the Savior of the world doing in His resurrection if He takes time to fold it by saying, don't fret, I'll be back. I am coming again. And so the promise of the resurrection is not just that He defeated death, and, and defeated the grave and redeemed us is that He's coming back for us one day. I'll be back. Not in the Arnold voice either. 
And then verse 9, here's the third thing. So that, that excites me every time I read it. So maybe you do with it what you want. Verse 9 says, They still hadn't understood the scripture that Jesus, that said Jesus what? Must rise from the dead. He must. So again, he had to rise from the dead. He must rise from the dead to validate everything he said about himself. Because that was a part of the plan. When he's saying, here's who I am, I'm also saying that I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to defeat death. And so if there's no resurrection from death, it removes everything he said about himself. Then all of it's fake. All of it. That's why Paul said, if there's no resurrection, we're all to be pitied. None of it's true. But he must rise from the dead. And since he did, he is who he said he was. And then there's this exchange in verse 11 through 18 where he has this exchange with Mary Magdalene. And I'm not going to get into that except that, remember, she thinks he's the gardener. Again, she's having doubts. I mean, I, they, we saw what happened to Jesus. You can't be him. And he's kind of in the shadows. And she said, hey, what have you done with my Lord? Have you taken him? Have they stolen Because they're all having doubts. There's no way he can be risen from the dead, literally. And then Jesus speaks to Mary and she said, teacher, She's brought to, whoa, you really are alive. And so that verse 11 through 18 is, is exchanged with Mary. So let's jump to verses 19 through 23. We're going to move quickly here. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. So here, they're, they're, they're afraid, they're in hiding. Suddenly, Jesus was standing in there among them. I love that. Boom, he's just there. And he says, peace with you. And, and he spoke, and he showed them the wounds in his hand and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord again. He said, peace with you, with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Then it says this in verse 22. Then he believed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And so, let's look at a couple other things here. Um, let's go to the next slide. Pull out a couple of other things that what the Easter story speaks of. They were filled with joy. They were filled with joy. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. It's the actual, physical resurrection from the dead. Not just spiritual, not just, you know, symbolic. It's really. A resurrection from the dead. He was dead, and now he is alive. He was tortured, now he's alive. It doesn't just happen. And their joy was rooted in the fact that everything he said was true. The resurrection was true. It really happened. And that's why they spent their days writing and testifying that this was true. That's why most of them were tortured themselves and killed because of their faith. And what these guys endured because of their faith, all in joy. Peter and, Jane, you know, Peter and John were beaten um, in Acts. They were beaten for preaching the gospel. And so they came out after being beaten rejoicing because they said, He is alive. And we'll continue to do this because of the fact that He is alive. And they were filled with joy because it was true. He was completely dead and now completely alive. 
And that's why we can have joy and contentment and peace because of the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. Next one, verse 22. This is the last one. Verse 22 says, Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's a very interesting passage here. This is actually, remember in, at Pentecost in Acts 2, it says the Holy Spirit comes into the, the, the people that are meeting there, and, and, and there's wind, there's fire, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them to birth the church, where we have the birthplace of the church. Well, this, that event hasn't happened yet. Jesus is risen from the dead, and now he comes in and he breathes on them, and he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a part of this that we can say, that he was commissioning them as apostles to carry out his ministry, which was true. But he's also breathing new spiritual life in them. And there's a significant thing that's happening here. The phrase that's used here is he breathed on them. It's only used in two other places in Scripture. I'm going to talk about one of those places because, I mean, you can get into the second one. It's equally powerful. But the first place you see where God breathed life in is when Adam... And Eve, when God first came to Adam, and, he, and it says this in Genesis 2, that he breathed into him the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And so the Greek word that, is, that he breathed on them is the same Hebrew word in Genesis 2, 7, where God's breathing actual life into this man that he had created. Why is this significant? Because in Genesis 2, like we said, God breathed life into man, and he made him a living being. The actual breath of God gave life to man. And so this man becomes a living being, and what does he do? He becomes, he rejects God, and he becomes God of his own life. That's sin. And so God breathes life. Man, by sin, allows death to come in him. So where there once was God's breath of life, now man has allowed death to come in. So God breathed man, man mismanaged, and became God in his own life. Sin came in, and that's the problem with all of us. We are here, you are taking breath right now. When you're, when you're breathing in and out, you're only doing that because God is allowing you to do it. We have the breath of life and, that we have because God has breathed life into each other and He's made us a living being. That is why there are no accidents. When you were born, God had a plan for your life. In fact, before you were born, before the foundation of the earth, He saw you and knew you and had a plan for your life. If He didn't, you wouldn't be here right now. So there's a plan for you. He gives us life and He gives us desires that we give our lives to Him. And then when we live our own way without Him, we inherit death just like Adam and Eve did. They inherited physical and spiritual death, as we do. So after the resurrection of the dead, Jesus breathed life into the disciples. Eternal, spiritual life. Now again, physically they were going to die, but He breathed in them eternal and spiritual life. Because He rose from the dead, He has now the authority to breathe the life of God into those things that were dead because of sin. It's kind of spiritual CPR. We've all heard those stories when someone's rescued and they can't breathe, you know, and people, you know, and have you ever learned CPR? Any CPR certified people here? You know what I'm talking about? You know, you learn to give the breath, you find out if they're breathing. 
And if they're not breathing, it, is this person saying that you have you have the ability to breathe, and therefore I'm going to breathe into them, blow air into your lungs, so that the hope there is to revive you and to give you the the ability, the capacity to live again, to breathe again. And a person that has maybe drowned, or they something has happened, they have gone from filled with life to lifeless, and so someone acts and someone does something about it. And in a spiritual sense, we've lost our breath. We've lost the breath of life because of sin. And here, Jesus, after the resurrection, it says that He breathed on them to say, that which was dead, I breathe life into it. And so the greatest rescue mission ever was done by Jesus to come to a world filled with lifelessness and death. And He breathed life again. He restores what God did back in the garden and sin caused death. Jesus came and responded to death by breathing life into us, those who will receive that. And He could only do this if He was risen from the dead. And He can only do this when we repent of our sins. We say, I don't want to be my own God anymore. And I want to make you Lord and Savior and God of my life. I don't want to live my own way. I want to live your way. Because your way is best. And we can have hope. We can have peace. We can enjoy a true life. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And without that, none of us have a chance. And He rose from the dead to validate who He said He was. And I'm closing with this. But the resurrection was more than an event. The resurrection is a person. And that person is Jesus. This is one of the titles that Jesus gives himself. Remember when his friend Lazarus has died. You guys know the story. John chapter 11. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were three friends that Jesus would stay with when he would travel through that area. And Jesus is, is, you know, a few days away, and and, uh, and 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 so they send word, and they said, "Your friend Lazarus is sick." Well, then Jesus doesn't just respond right away. He, in fact, he waits. And then word comes that your your friend Lazarus is is dead, and 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 and, and so he goes and he waits, and when he gets there, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. King James says that he's thinking. That means really stink. When you're throwing King James into the mix, that's really, that's really stink. Stink it. And so he gets there, and there's this commotion that's going on. Mary and Martha are distraught. Their brother is dead. They come up to Jesus. You know, Martha, Mary can't even face him. She's in the house. She's just hurting. Martha comes out there, and she said, you know, if you would have been here, you could have done something about this. And Jesus, you know, we, we, we understand the miracle where he called Lazarus out of the tomb. And that's a miracle that he raises this man from the dead. But there's something beyond, behind the scenes that's more significant because although Lazarus was raised from the dead, eventually Lazarus would die again. He wouldn't live forever, you know, in a human body. He died again. But Jesus was making a bold statement here. In verse 25, Jesus told her, Martha, 
So I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, I am the resurrection. Uh, resurrection is not just what I do. It's who I am. Then he says, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And so Lazarus is somewhat of a foreshadowing of saying, although you die, you will live. And anyone who has died in Christ, they have been risen from the dead. Their soul and their spirit is with the Lord right now. They are with the Lord. So Jesus said, anyone who believes in me even will live even after dying. Everyone who believes in me and believes in, in me will never die. Never, ever die. And then he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because this can sound confusing. They said, well, we've seen people die and they, they're, they're still in the tomb. But Jesus said, if you belong to me, although you die, you, will, you won't die. You won't, you won't really be a dead because, because the inside of you, the real person, the soul, the spirit of you will be with me, will be in heaven forever. And although you die in this life, you will live after because I am the resurrection. And then when he rose from the dead, Again, it solidified who he was and validated that he is the resurrection and the life. You cannot be resurrected. You cannot have true new life. You cannot have eternal life without Jesus, without the resurrection. The man, Jesus. Without him, we have no chance. And that is why the gospel must be proclaimed. The story of Easter must be proclaimed while we are still alive. The church must grab a hold of this idea and say we must proclaim what the Lord did forever and ever because that is the good news of the salvation is that Jesus is who he said he was. He's the only way we could have new life. Because he looks at her and he asks her this question and he asks all of us this question. Here's the Easter question. Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? Because if you do, it's to change everything. Do you believe that he is who he said he was? Do you believe that he was dead and he rose from the dead? He's alive right now. He's in heaven and he's preparing a place for us. Do you believe this? And do we live like we really, really believe it? And so the, my question to leave us with today is what are we going to do with this information? Another worship team tomorrow. What will you do with this information? And this question that Jesus asked, he asked to us, do you believe this? This worship song that um, the worship team is going to do somewhat of an anthem of worship about the Easter story, and we're going to close with this. I'm going to have you stand. You may be familiar with the song. If not, you can kind of sing along with us and... Then I'll close this at the end.